The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the 7th chapter and the 14th verse. The 14th verse in the 7th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Or if you prefer it now, about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Those who meet here regularly, Sunday by Sunday, will recall that we have been studying this seventh chapter of John's Gospel for a number of Sunday evenings. And we have been doing so because it gives us a very vivid and very graphic picture of the reaction of men and women to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when he was here in this world. The business of preaching is to bring men and women face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the primary function and task of the church. That is what these Gospels do. They just bring us face to face with him. Because it is the whole contention of the Christian message, the New Testament in particular, that the only hope for men and women is in this person. Not only hope in this life, but hope in the next life. Hope for all eternity. Nothing, therefore, is of such supreme importance as our reaction to this person, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Well, now we are looking, therefore, at this uh, chapter because it uh, tells us of the reaction of various people to him. And you remember that it all arose over this question of the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast came round, as the Old Testament has reminded us this evening, once a year, and the Jews were commanded to go up to Jerusalem, and they went up in great companies of people. They had their caravans, and they would join in one another, and they'd form great processions. They went from every part of the country up to Jerusalem for this Feast of Tabernacles. And you remember how in the first uh, verses of this chapter we are told how that led to that altercation, as it were, between our Lord and his own brothers. They were surprised that he didn't go up at once, that he didn't go with them, that he didn't join in the procession, that he stayed there up in Galilee instead of going up to Jerusalem. We've been considering all that. And there, do you see, we have seen the reaction of his own brothers to him. We are told specifically and explicitly in verse 5, for neither did his brethren believe in him. And we've been considering the causes. But now he himself has gone up to Jerusalem. He's explained to them why he didn't go with them, but now he's gone up on his own. As we are told, he went up, as it were, in secret. He didn't go up with a great show. Not openly, but as it were, in secret. And then you remember we were told that the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is this man? Where is this fellow? 
And then, how hearing that he was there, a kind of muttering began amongst the common people. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, nay, he deceives the people. However, they were all so afraid of the authorities that they didn't say this sort of thing very openly, albeit no man spake openly of him, for fear of the Jews. Well, there, you see, we've been considering various reactions to him. Some praising him, some criticizing, and all misunderstanding him. But now the story goes onwards, and we are following it. Because now it's about to reach what in many ways is the crucial teaching of this particular chapter. Now our Lord himself, about the middle of the feast, went into the temple, and he began to teach. He has his own time, as we've seen, for everything he does. But he now judges that the excitement has quietened down sufficiently for him to be able to begin his teaching. So there he is in the temple, and he begins to teach. And the question before us this evening is, what did he teach? What did he say? It's vital for this reason that we are going on to consider again the reaction of the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders, to his teaching. The next verse is, And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? And that leads to this important statement. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. And then, If any man willeth to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself, and so on. Now, we can't understand all that teaching unless we are clear in our minds as to what he did teach. He began to teach. What did he teach? There seems to me to be no real difficulty about this question. Surely, the remainder of the chapter shows us quite plainly that he taught them about the Feast of Tabernacles. There are hints of that even when he begins to talk about the law, but if there's anybody in any doubt at all about it, listen to verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now, that was a direct reference to what was done on that great day of the feast when water was taken from the pool of Siloam and was poured over the altar. He was taking a part of the imagery, the ceremonial of the feast, in order to preach about himself and about the forthcoming giving and shedding forth of the Holy Spirit. So there, quite explicitly, our Lord was taking advantage of the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles in order to teach the people. And it seems to me there is no doubt at all that that is what he was doing here at the very beginning. He used the whole occasion, as was his custom always, in order to bring men and women face to face with the truth of God. He was able to expound the meaning of feasts in a way that nobody else could. That's why these authorities were so surprised. He was able, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, to expound the law in a way that they'd never heard before. That's what he did. He took the teaching. And he expounded it, and he explained it. And here I say, there is no question that that is what he did on this occasion. He taught them the meaning 
of the Feast of Tabernacles, why it had been instituted, and what God intended mankind to learn from it and to realize through it. Well, now, what is this? And the answer, of course, is to be found very clearly in that 23rd chapter of the book of Leviticus, that portion of which we read at the beginning. And I read it in order that we might be reminded of this. Here, I say, is the key, then, to the teaching which our Lord gave the people on that occasion there in the temple. And I want to attract attention particularly to what we read in verses 42 and 43. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, you remember what happened. On this particular date of this particular seventh month, everybody had to go up in Jerusalem. And there they had to make of themselves booths to dwell in. They took down these various trees. The instructions are here. You shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows from the brook. And with these boughs and branches... They were made for themselves tents, booths, in which to dwell. And they had to live in them seven days, for seven days. But you remember, there were various other aspects to this great feast of tabernacles. Why were they asked to do this? What was the meaning of all this? Well, the answer is plain. It was, incidentally, a kind of harvest festival. It was a feast at a time when the harvest had been safely gathered in and when they were able to meet and face again the rigors of the winter and the coming spring. Feast of harvest. Thanksgiving. Celebration of God's goodness to them. But, and still more important, as this 43rd verse reminds us, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. It is to be a permanent annual reminder of the exodus from Egypt, the traveling through the wilderness on the way to Canaan. They dwelt in booths as they traveled through that wilderness. And they are to be reminded of this in perpetuity, it is something that is never to be forgotten. And therefore our Lord takes up all this and he teaches the people the meaning, the significance of the Feast of Tabernacles. What is it? Dear me, says someone, are you really proposing to hold us with something like that? We came here, says someone, expecting that you'd be telling us about capital punishment or euthanasia. These are the problems of the hour. Should people suffering with cancer be allowed to go on living or should we put them to sleep? Should a man that murders a policeman, should his life be taken from him? These are the problems. 
I suggest, my dear friend, that they're not your problems. There are bigger and deeper and vaster problems for every one of us. It's a nil day for the Christian church when her preaching is controlled by the popular press. I'm not commissioned to preach to people what they want to hear. I have a message from this book from God. What's the message? Well, I think I can show you that what our Lord taught in the temple about the Feast of Tabernacles is the most urgent teaching needed by the world at this hour. If all men but paid heed to this teaching, there'd be no murders. And you wouldn't have your modern muddle and your modern problems. You see, the tragedy is we are approaching problems too directly. We are not setting them into the context of God and of eternity. It's because we're all so topical that the word of God isn't having its place. The way to tackle the immediate problem is to go back to the ultimate problem. It is true here as in other respects. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These other things will follow. Very well then I say let us face this teaching which is here unfolded to us. What is the first lesson therefore of the Feast of Tabernacles? Well it is a lesson with regard to the nature of life. The nature of our life in this world. Here men and women are called out of their houses, out of their homes, and they're told to live for a week, for seven days, in booths, tents, made thus out of branches and boughs, a temporary kind of structure, for seven days every year. You know, I sometimes think that there is nothing needed more urgently by this modern generation to which you and I belong than something like that. For our essential trouble is that our whole view of life in this world is wrong. What is it? Well, we forget that it's a temporary existence, a temporary life. It's a very frail kind of existence. Typified by a tent. Not a solid building with deep foundations and great massive walls. No, no, a tent. A frail structure, set up for a moment, liable to be blown over by the billows, by the hurricane. A frail existence, a temporary existence. Oh, there's a great phrase in the 13th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews that puts it all so perfectly and if I had one word which I would put before men and women today, before everything else, here it is. Here have we no continuing city. Mankind is living today as if this is the only world and as if it's a permanent existence. And the great idea today is to settle down in this world, isn't it? Security, that's what we're all after. That's why we preach about bums instead of about God. Security. We want to stay here, you see. In America, prosperity. Yes, they're interested in religion. Why? I sometimes think it's because they don't want to lose their prosperity. This world, anything that will help us to maintain what we've got, settle down. Permanent security. 
And the answer is the Feast of Tabernacles. Tents. Here have we no continuing city. But mankind is fooled by its own works. We live in big cities and it all seems so solid. It's all here and round and about us. And we feel we're going to stay here forever, but we are not. We are not. And the first object of the Feast of Tabernacles was to remind these people that you can't settle down in this world. It's only temporary. We are here today, we are gone tomorrow. We are all journeymen, we are sojourners, pilgrims and strangers. You know, this is the message of the whole book. This is the great fundamental theme of the Bible and it comes to mankind tonight and it says the same thing. You, with your plans and your state schemes and your welfare state, you who are settling down and killing germs and conquering diseases and who think you're going to live forever. Yes, I know, the age of death is going up and up and mankind is laughing at it all. We are settling down. No, no, you're not. In spite of all your provisions and all your precautions, you're living in a temporary world and it's an uncertain world. It's a journey, my dear friend. And nightly move, nightly pitch my moving tent. A day's march nearer home. I make no apology therefore this evening of calling your attention to this. The first question for every one of us is not whether we should put to death somebody who's got some lethal disease. Not whether a man who commits a murder should be put to death. The question for us is this. Have we thought about our own death? How easy it is to argue about these other things. Should a man's life be taken? Should life be taken by a doctor? Should life be taken by the state? And you see, while you're arguing about those, you've never faced this question, that your life is on a very short lease. Pilgrims and strangers, travelers, moving tent. It would be a very good thing for us, wouldn't it, to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. And just to remind ourselves that though we are so clever, so wonderful, and have harnessed nature and have conquered so many diseases, that still, the fact is about every one of us that we are here today and gone tomorrow. Here have we no continuing city. The summons is bound to come or sooner or late to every one of us. And the summons will be this. Move on. Strike your tent. Come along. Or as our Lord put it, you remember in that parable of the rich fool, who was there congratulating himself on his affluence and prosperity and his phenomenal success, which was so great that he was embarrassed and talks about pulling down his barns and building greater and says to himself, Saul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night, 
Thy soul shall be required of thee. You're living in a tent, my friend. You're living in a tabernacle. Don't be misled by the social schemes and social security and economic and financial security. Don't be misled by it, by the solidity of buildings, the solidity of cities. It's a brief and a passing life that we're all in. And the object of this teaching is to make us face that, to realize it, to remind us that we are men and women on a journey. And we've got to go on. We can't step out. We can't contract out. We can't move back. It's going on and on and on. We are journeymen. And we are moving in the direction of an end, a death, a finality. That's the first thing. But let me hurry on. The second object, clearly, of this Feast of Tabernacles was to remind men and women of their relationship to God. That you, our generations, may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out to the land of Egypt. I am the Lord. You are God. Relationship to God. Isn't this the thing that we need to be reminded of? The moment we realize our smallness, our frailty and the precarious nature of the life which we live, we then begin to think of our relationship to God, the one who commanded the feast. The one who gave the detailed instructions as to how it should be kept. My dear friend, my business here is not to give my opinions on current affairs or on these topical matters about which people get so excited. It is to ask you this question. Do you know your relationship to God? That's the thing that matters. Your opinions and mine on a thousand and one questions are trivialities that don't matter. But here is a question on which your whole eternal destiny is going to suspend. Your relationship to God. And he has given us clear instruction about this in the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you remember how he told them to observe it? Here it is. On the first day shall be an holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. Everybody needs this instruction. Christians as well as non-Christians. You know, all our religious conferences come to nothing. I'll tell you why. We never start them with a holy convocation. We have a form of prayer, of course. We have an introduction, introductory devotional service. But we rush on to the business. God commanded these people to give a whole day to a holy convocation. Everything else was to be set aside. No servile work was to be done. And he's still teaching us that. 
One day in seven is meant to be a holy convocation, my friend. God has ordained that from the very beginning and it's in force at this moment. I don't care so much which day you observe, but I do, I am concerned about one day in seven. A holy convocation. No servile work, giving it up to God and to his worship and to his praise. No, no, not just rushing to a morning service and then going to play your polo or whatever it is. No, no, giving the whole day to him. To God. Not as a polite Christian attending a morning service and then spending the rest of the day in keeping your correspondence up to date and writing to your children at the boarding school. No, no, giving the whole day to God in worship, morning and evening. Christian people, is it surprising the church is not being blessed? When we are content with just giving God a portion of our time, he wants a whole day. The first day shall be a holy convocation unto the Lord. And what's it to be, how's it to be used? What's to be done? Well, in worship. God is to be worshipped because he is God. Because he is who and what he is. He says, I am the Lord your God. The business of the feast was to remind men and women that God has made them and not they themselves. That we are all the products of his work and activity that all we have and hold are under his hands. Life, being, existence, health, strength, food, clothing, shelter, it all comes from him. He is over all and above all. He is God. He is the only God. And he is over all. And there is but one attitude that is worthy in his presence, and that is worship. Bowing before him. Worshipping him, acknowledging him. Holy convocation. And then you notice the details about sacrifices. Seven days ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And then again a holy convocation on the eighth day. And ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. Ye shall do no servile work therein. What is the meaning of these sacrifices? Oh, it's quite simple. This is a way in which they acknowledge God and his holy laws. For God gave mankind laws by which they should live. He gave a law originally to man in Adam. He gave it explicitly through Moses to these children of Israel in the Ten Commandments and the moral law and all that accompanied it. This is God's law. And he has even given laws as to how he should be worshipped and how he should be praised. And a part of this ceremonial, you see, was designed to, to make people realize that they are to acknowledge God and his holy laws. I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not worship any gods beside me. Thou shalt not bow down to any graven image. Isn't this what the world needs? Men and women are bowing down to their own graven images. They are taking the name of God in vain. 
They have made themselves their own gods, their own country, their own political party, their wealth, their position, their children, their possessions. They're, they're worshipping their own gods. And here God is calling us back to worship him and to acknowledge him alone and to humble ourselves under his most holy laws. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or ox or ass or servant. Men and women, isn't this the thing the world needs to be hearing? Look at our moral muddle. Look at our problems. Rapidly developing, multiplying week by week. The chaos that surrounds us. And what is needed, I say it isn't a mere discussion of particular problems. It's this. It is because men and women have lost the consciousness of God and have become lawless and are living to themselves and making their own laws and playing fast and loose even with the gift of life that God has given us and saying that you can kill a person if it's going to relieve pain and suffering. That's why things are as they are. No respect for life which is given by God and can only be taken back by God. Burnt offerings and sacrifices. Man has sinned against God and in his offerings he acknowledges it and he confesses it. And he takes his propitiatory offering. He takes the animal and kills him and takes the blood and he offers it to God. It is an appeasement. It is asking God to be merciful and to have pity and to have compassion. God ordered it. Holy convocation, worship, sacrifices. And then praise. Praise to the God of the harvest. If we've gathered in our harvest and put it into our barns, who do we thank for it? Do we thank modern science with its new fertilizers? And it's artificial manures. Do we thank men who can even produce artificial rain? Well, you may if you like. And it'll lead to disaster. But we should thank God. The giver of every good and every perfect gift. If he were to withhold the sunshine and the rain, we'd all be starving. And he controls it all. It is of his goodness that we are not already consumed. God is the giver of every good and every perfect gift. It is from his gracious hands that everything comes. The children of Israel had to spend seven days in tabernacles in order to remember these, this kind of thing. My friend, this is the teaching still for us. Is your life lived under God? Do you worship him? Is he supreme in your life? Are you living and keeping his holy laws? Are you praising him? When did you last thank him out of a full heart? Do you thank him day by day for the health and strength you've got and which he could take away like that from you for your preservation and all these things? Oh, how we need to be brought back to the teaching of the Feast of Tabernacles. In other words, you see, it comes to this. In the tents and in the ceremonial, they are really being brought to realize their utter, absolute dependence upon God. 
The word in the book of Deuteronomy tells us that God did all these things to them in order that he might impress this upon their minds, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We are traveling through a wilderness, and nothing is so vitally important and urgent for us as that we should realize our dependence upon God. Forget your insurances. Forget your plans and schemes. They won't save you. They won't save you from death. They won't save you from judgment. They won't save you from meeting God. Here I say we are called to realize this, that we are utterly, absolutely dependent, final, upon God. He's the giver of every gift to men, of every genius, every ability, every power, every discovery. They're but discoveries of the things God has put into nature. We call them the laws of nature, but they're not. They're the laws of God, and they're all for the good and the benefit of men. We are dependent upon him. Let us acknowledge it. Let us thank him for it. But let me hurry to the third and the last thing. The Feast of Tabernacles is to remind us about the nature of life in this world, about our relationship to God, yes. And above everything to remind us of what God has done for man. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when? When I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Here it is. Look at it first of all in the case of the children of Israel. Why did God make them dwell in booths? Why did he ordain the Feast of Tabernacles? Oh, it was to remind them forever of what he did for them. What did he do for them? Well, there they were in Egypt. In the bondage and the cruel slavery. With the taskmasters and their whips. Shouting for more bricks, giving them less straw to make them. The agony of Egypt. The slavery, the suffering, the attempt to destroy their children. And their own utter absolute helplessness. The slaves of Pharaoh and his hosts and all his organization. This little people. Oh, the hopelessness, the tragedy, the helplessness of it all. And what happened? God looked down from heaven upon it all. And saw the tragedy and the shame and the agony. And as it's put in the book of Exodus, he came down amongst them. He sent down a deliverer. He raised up Moses, you remember. He did it all from beginning to end. It was God's action. He planned it all. What did he plan? Well, he planned a way of escape for them. He and he alone did it. From beginning to end. He made a way whereby they should escape out of the hands of the Egyptians. He delivered them from the oppression and the cruel, terrible tyranny. He gave them detailed instructions how to do it all. He sent the plagues upon the Egyptians. 
And especially that terrible night when he slew the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but saved the Israelites, whom he had instructed to put blood upon the doorposts and the lintel. The Passover. And the marvelous escape, you remember. And the coming to the Red Sea. And the escape and the drowning of Pharaoh's hosts. And the landing on the other side. Delivered from their enemies, set free from their captors, obstacles overcome, leading them through the wilderness, feeding them with manna, and on and on and on, and ultimately to bring them to the promised land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, the haven of refuge, the land for their possession. God had done it all of his grace and by his own power and wonderful action. So he calls Moses to him and gives him these instructions. See to it, he said, that every seventh month, every year, these children of Israel should live in booths and observe the Feast of Tabernacles that they might ever remember what I did for their fathers when I brought them out with a mighty hand, delivered them from all their oppressors and took them into the land of promise. I imagine that our blessed Lord and Savior outlined in his own divine manner some such teaching as that but I am very certain that he didn't stop at that. As later on, when he took up the ceremonial of the pouring of the water from the pool of Siloam upon the altar, he applied it to himself and said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. I am the pool of Siloam. I am the rock that was in the wilderness, as he did all that. I am certain that at this point he also applied all this teaching to himself. All these things are but types. These are written, as Paul puts it to the Corinthians, for our instruction, examples and samples. These are the shadows pointing to the substance. And the substance is Christ. He was the rock in the wilderness. He's everything. He's the fulfillment of all the types. The great, the eternal, anti-type of God. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. Yes, the everything of God. So I can put it to you like this. This Feast of Tabernacles tells us about him. What does it tell us about him? Oh, John tells us in the first chapter, in the prologue of this gospel of his, which we are considering in chapter 7. The word, he says, was made flesh and dwelt among us. But that's a bad translation. This is the right translation. The word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Do you know why we're in this chapel tonight? I'll tell you. It is because the Lord of glory, the Son of God, the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, left heaven 
and its glory and its security and its eternity and came on earth and dwelt in a tent of flesh tabernacled among us. Took up his temporary abode in this world in the likeness of sinful flesh. Came down into the wilderness the chaos of life. Two men and women whom he had seen from the glory in the bondage and the shackles and the captivity of sin and Satan. He came down and tabernacled among us because he saw people like you and me, slaves of the world and the flesh and the devil, slaves as much as the Israelites were in Egypt, with the taskmasters and the whips and the scorpions, and all the agony and the cruelty of it all. He looked down from the ramparts of heaven, and he saw us. And he came down amongst us. He came into this wilderness which we call life. And he dwelt in that frail tent. He took his place amongst us. He lived the kind of life we live. He was dependent upon his father with, with all the surrounding insecurity. He came, he tabernacled among us. And why did he do it? Oh, it was because he came to do for us something infinitely bigger and greater even that, than that that was done for the children of Israel in their captivity and bondage in Egypt. He came and tabernacled among us in order that he might deliver us from the bondage of sin. He came to deliver us from the accusations of the law, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, the holiness of God. We are all condemned by it. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. We are all together in sin, Jews and Gentiles. The whole world lieth guilty before God. And we could do nothing about it. Condemned under the law, the slaves of lusts and passions and evil desires and sins. And we could do nothing. Try as we will, we cannot free ourselves. Take your new resolutions. Exercise an iron will, but still you fail. There we are in bondage and under utter condemnation. And we cannot set ourselves free. Civilization cannot free us. Politics cannot free us. Teaching, learning, philosophy, education, religion cannot free us. There is only one who can. And blessed be his name, he did. The word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And he took our burdens and sins and problems upon himself. He conquered the devil, our arch enemy, in his earthly life. He rendered a perfect obedience to God's law. And then he made a sacrifice of himself. Sacrifices, yes, here is the sacrifice. He made his soul an offering for sin. For his own self, bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. 
He died that we might be delivered from the Egypt of our sinfulness, our condemnation under the law. And he reconciles us to God. And he leads us through the wilderness, giving us the heavenly manna. Every supply we need, he gives. And at the end, he will take us by the hand and introduce us into the heavenly Canaan of our everlasting home. He will present us faultless before the presence of God's glory with exceeding joy. The liberation, the reconciliation, the blessed hope that can never fade away. My dear friend, had you realized the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles? That is what he taught in the temple there at Jerusalem. Have you heard his message? Have you realized the nature of the life you're living in this world? Had you realized before that your tent is moving hourly nearer this end and this judgment? Had you realized that the Son of God so loved you that he left eternal bliss and glory and tabernacled in this world that you might be delivered and might be saved. Forget everything else. What else matters? Save that you should be reconciled to God. And be saved eternally.